Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Our Shelves, a podcast where writers from the legendary feminist publishing house Virago talk about their cultural worlds. We'll be diving into these writers' bookshelves, record collections and recollections to discover what inspires them. I'm Lisey Scholes, and my guest today is Linda Grant. Linda is the author of four nonfiction books and seven novels. She won the Orange Prize for Fiction in 2000 and the Letter Ulysses Prize for Literary Reportage in 2006. Her novel, The Clothes on Their Backs, was shortlisted for the 2008 Man Booker Prize and went on to win the South Bank Show Award. And The Dark Circle was shortlisted for the 2017 Women's Prize for Fiction. Welcome to our shelves, Linda. It's a real pleasure to have you here today. Thank you. Your last novel, I want to start by talking a little bit about that, A Stranger City, which has just been released in paperback for anyone who hasn't had the uh, chance to read it yet. It presents readers with a labyrinth of stories from contemporary London, within which these very small communities take centre stage. And as a Londoner yourself, I was wondering what your experience of the city has been over the past few months. And from what you've seen, has lockdown challenged this sense of community that you write so brilliantly about, or has it given it a chance to shine? I think the latter. Um, I I think over. The, I I live in a, a sort of quite a quiet road in North London on a, on a hill, and on the other side of the road, and I'm looking at it now. There's a large block of interwar flats. They're all one bedroom flats, and it's always been a bit sort of rear window for me, sort of you know trying to peer in, but never actually seeing anything particularly exciting. Just people cooking and watching TV. You need a good murder to get you going. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. Um, I used to be able to see the shard in the gap between two buildings, but that's been built over. Somebody's built some luxury apartments, um, which will probably never be lived in, in front of them. But when lockdown started, I was really very, very anxious, very, very nervous, and um, felt that, you know, I was going into this period sort of of intense you know, unparalleled isolation and probably loneliness and that writing would would not be the same because when you're writing, you're trying to escape from the world. But actually what I wanted to do was to escape to the world. There was no world to escape from. But I, I think what happened was the first week of um, clapping for the NHS, it was still dark. It was a week before the clocks went forward. And I remember hearing about it and thinking, oh, God, you know, nobody's going to do it. Um, you know, I, I'm sure I'll, I'll just go and stand by the window, but I'm not going to start it off because I don't want to look like a complete idiot. <laughs> and then... At eight o'clock, suddenly the first window opened and there was a young man standing here clapping and I thought, well, I'll join him to encourage him. And then all the windows opened. I mean, there's 64 flats there, all the windows, almost all the windows opened and these outlines of these figures were standing and whooping and somebody up the street started playing an electric guitar and cars were coming past and beeping and people were walking along and, and applauding. And it was the most incredible moment. I mean, I felt as if I wanted to burst into tears because I think I felt much less alone than I had. And it continued on as strong as ever right through the eight or ten weeks. 
And then what happened was a, a local WhatsApp group started up helping, you know, helping people who needed doing their shopping, doing and exchanging information. And our local corner store was absolutely brilliant in making sure that they were not only stocking things, but letting people know through Facebook when they had new stocks of things. So it, it was a remarkable thing that I, I think the lockdown Brought, brought us together as a community and we started to know each other. We started to know our neighbours. It was a very strange but kind of quite marvellous thing. Mm. And the city felt stranger. So there were all these sort of the windows were these little kind of postage stamps with people behind them. And it felt, it felt really kind of quite wonderful. And it was one of the strange sort of advantages of lockdown that the sense of very, very localised communities was massively increased. Mm. I'm also really interested in what you said at the beginning about writing being an escape from the world for you. Mm. Because I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I read elsewhere you talking about when you're writing, you like to be very isolated. I mean, you don't like to write with other people mm. in the house. You like it to be, it's yeah. a very, it's an experience of solitude, right? So yes. in one sense, one would possibly imagine, oh, well, lockdown's perfect, even more for you then, <laughs> but clearly not. That was, what I, that was what I thought at the beginning. I thought, well, I don't see what difference this is going to make to me. I mean, I can't see how my life is going to be any different mm. but it didn't feel like that I was checking with a lot of other writers through various sort of you know phoning them or, or checking with them on social media and asking people are you writing and everyone said no hardly anybody was writing and I think that um the anxiety was too intense. Mm. Um, you're you're constantly looking for what was called the terror scroll, you know, looking on Twitter to see what the latest yes. news was. And my imagination was going completely crazy, sort of, you know, this was something that we'd never experienced before. And what was going to happen, was all life on earth going to be killed off by this virus? How long would it go on for? Um, what were the real risks of it? Did I dare leave the house? There were so many questions. So it was trying to reformulate the solidity of your reality where everything was melting like a Dali clock. Mm. And in order to be able to write, you have to feel, I, I, well, I do, I have to feel sufficiently comfortable that everything else in the world is as it should be, is normalised so that I can write. And I didn't feel that at all. I felt that the world, the, the clock had to be made to stop melting before I could start writing again. And, you know, you need great concentration. And I just didn't have it. I didn't have it at all. Yeah, I think, I mean, I've heard this a lot from, in terms of both writers and um, people talking about their reading experiences as well. It's been fascinating mm. to hear how many people have really struggled to read books during lockdown, even just to get into a good novel. And they've just found, and I think I can, you know, I can understand that. It's that um, the sort of pull, the lure of the Twitter yeah. feed or the, you know, the Guardian yes. news feed that's constantly being yeah. updated and you want to be there in that moment. And it's very hard to escape into something else. Have you found, did you find reading hard as well or not? I, I didn't find reading harder, but my TV consumption increased dramatically because I was never out. You yes. know, you're never going out anywhere. <laughs> you know, it's the same thing every evening. And so I think um, the, the thing that I watched very, very early on was um, a BBC sort of comedy series called The Detectorist. Oh, that's brilliant. Everything is is peaceful and normal, and there's lovely countryside, and it's always summer, and you know it's it's kind of quite gentle and it's completely unthreatening. What I didn't want was any kind of literature which you know which made demands on on me, um, which frightened me or, or took me out of. I wanted things that that sort of you know kept me in a kind of comfort zone of denial of reality. Yeah. I mean, it's an extraordinary time, really. I, I one of the things that that I I learned quite early on it was from my sister was that I was having something called an amygdala attack. Oh. An amygdala is a little gland, little thing inside the brain which controls the flight or fight mechanism. And what it does is, in when you're in danger, it floods the body with cortisol. 
and the cortisol makes you feel nauseous, dizzy, breathless, frightened. And it's telling you, take action, take action. You need to do something. But there wasn't anything you could do. So it was all, the cortisol was churning and churning and churning around my body. And it took me a while. That that was not an ideal time to either read or write. It was a time for escapism into something, you know, really undemanding. Yeah, no, I haven't read about that, but that makes perfect sense and sort of chimes with some of my yeah, early feelings, you know, a few months ago. So um, that explains it all. It's interesting. We're going to talk a little bit about some of your TV choices um, in some later questions. But to yes. start with, I want to ask, you know, on the topic of reading, what is it that you've got on your bedside table right now that you're making your way through or about to start? I've got three books, one about two I'm in the middle of and one that I'm about to start. I have been reading Barbara Pym's A Glass Full of Blessings, which has been proceeding fairly slowly. Okay. I had read An Excellent Women. I hadn't, I'd read her before, but not for a long, 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 long time. And I don't think I'd read A Glass Full of Blessings. I did like Excellent Women. I enjoyed it um, second time round. I'm in a strange period with it where I might abandon it, but I haven't committed to abandoning it. And then what happened was someone on Twitter <laughs> tweeted about a new collection of short stories by Penelope Mortimer. Um, and <laughs> who could that have been? And um, I ordered I, I ordered that and I picked it up from Waterstones the next day. I got a local Waterstones and they were able to get it for me immediately. And I read the first story and I read The Pumpkin Eater for the first time, I think it was last year, and I was absolutely stunned by it. I thought it was completely and totally extraordinary. Um, my explanation for not having read it was that it came out in the early 60s and I was a teenager and I wasn't really into reading books about bad marriages, you know. <laughs> I yeah. was in, you know, that that was not the subject matter which held me or held any interest for me. So it just slipped under under the radar. I never read it. Um, but this collection of stories has given me enormous pleasure. The, the first story, The Skylight, is one of the most terrifying stories I've ever read in my life. And it, it, there's no element of the supernatural, of horror. There's no psychopathic axe murderer. There's no ghost. There's nothing. But it's about um, a woman who's traveling with her young son to a house that they've booked for a holiday in the south of France. And when the taxi driver drops her off, she discovers that the house is completely locked up. And of course, this is long before mobile phones. And she's abandoned, doesn't know where the key is, can't get into the house. And it's the consequences of her attempts to get into the house, which frightened me so much. I had to skim read two pages because you can see it happening to yourself. You can see that something like this might happen, though I would never do what she did. Now I know. <laughs> <laughs> and I no also spoilers, but yes. love the story, which is really, you know, which a couple, um, a rather boring couple, invite a society couple for dinner based very much on the Mortimers. And it's Penelope Mortimer really laughing at herself, um, mm -hmm. laughing at her and John Mortimer and what terrible guests they are. The third book, when I was a child, I read an entire series called The Saddler's Wells Books by a writer called Lorna Hill, which started in the 1940s. Um, they were what we now call young adult novels, and they made a huge impression on me um, because they were about girls who wanted to be ballerinas and boys who wanted to be conductors. And they're living in Northumberland and they escaped to London in order to achieve acclaim and fortune. So wonderful for anyone living in the provinces. Anyway, I've been collecting first editions for several years now and I was in Suffolk wow. last week. And um, I uh, saw a secondhand bookshop and I wanted to go in just because, you know, the shops had only just opened. And I spied Rosanna at the Wells, first joins the Wells, first edition. That's beautiful. It was 
presented Belfair's High School for Girls Prize for Progress awarded to Carol Nock from Form 2B. Anyway, I had all of these in first editions myself, so that's going to be the next book that I read. And I love the Lorna Hill books. I mean, I don't think they would say anything to a younger generation, but they're they're marvellous. They're marvellous books about people who want to do something with their lives. Mm. Um, Yeah. Is there something about reading or rereading these sort of childhood classics, things that you've loved before now, that's that's particularly comforting? Or would you be reading them yes. anyway? Y- yeah, I I think that there are always periods in your life when you retreat back into childhood classics, um, partly because of the familiarity, but also because you're going back to a person that you have long lost and have yeah. lost any connection with. And you can remember, oh, I remember reading this. I remember what I felt. I remember what I thought. So it's a way of connecting with your with a past self. Um, and there is comfort because they're children's books, because, you know, they're not going to be threatening and they're not going to make any demands on you as a reader. Um, but it's also, I think, you know, for me as a child in the 50s, it's about going back going back to that era when you kind of recognise the sort of, you know, the landscape of the way people are living, Mm. you know, the clothes they wear, the food they eat, that kind of thing. Mm. And are the books on your bedside table, are they sort of, do you keep particular books there? Um, For example, are you always looking for something that's kind of comforting before you go to bed at night? Or are you reading other books in your living room, for example? I'm always fascinated to tell how people make the distinctions between their to read piles. I tend to read in in the living room um, on the sofa with my feet up. And the books which are actually on the bedside table are the ones waiting to be taken into the living room to be read. (laughs) <laughs> that's a nice way of doing it I think <laughs> yeah. excellent um well those are great recommendations in fact I think you're the second person on the podcast to be currently reading a Barbara Pym so she seems to be a bit of a go-to oh, right. for quarantine time I think yeah 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 interesting one and I th- there's a lot of um I mean obviously she has a huge sort of following and, and there are a lot of people who are great Pym fans and will kind of reread her over and over again so I think there's something comforting in that as well perhaps um uh, next, I want to talk to you a little bit about a recent article that you've read that's made you think. And this is also on the topic of uh, back to TV, kind of, uh, isn't it? So could you tell me about the article yeah. you've, you, t- you wanted to pick? There's an article in The Observer this Sunday uh, by Natasha Walter about the TV series Mrs. America, mm. um, which is a series about... Um, the campaign, the fight to pass the Equal Rights Amendment in America... And it focuses on two very different sets of women. Phyllis Schlafly, who was the opponent of the ERA and her housewife supporters. And then the great second wave feminists, um, Gloria Steinem, Betty Friedan, Bella Abzug, the rest. And I, I it's a nine-part series. I mean, I've just eaten it like sweets. It's, it's an incredible piece of TV, very funny, very uplifting, but with the knowledge from the very first episode that they're going to lose. Um, and Natasha said that what she thought was significant about it was that it's about failure. It's not about we struggled against adversity and then we won. The ERA has still not been passed when the attempt to start it being passed was in 1923. Both sides fail in their attempts to their attempts to campaign for the cause that they want. They do so in very different ways. The feminists lose the legislative campaign and Phyllis Schlafly loses the campaign to make herself a, a leading figure in Republican politics. And, you know, Natasha was saying so many of the fights that she has been engaged in have been failures, fail, fail, fail over and over and over again. And so the successes are so limited. And it's very rare to see that portrayed because um, people want to see a triumph. They want to see triumph over adversity. And that's not what this does. And it's not what most campaigning politics are about. Hmm. Was it, I mean, reading Natasha's article about it, did it change your opinion on what you'd watched in the show already? Or was it just sort of highlighting what you felt was very good about it? I thought it was a very interesting observation because um, at the beginning, when the thing, when it started, I thought, you know, 
I wonder how many people watching this for the first time, you know, who were not even born when this campaign started in the early 70s, knew that they were going to fail. Mm -hmm. And how different is it to watch this if you know that it failed and you know that Phyllis Schlafly was triumphant? And so all the way through, I kept on thinking, this is, you know, this is a doomed cause. Um, And what you see as the episodes wear on is the rise of the moral majority and the conservative right, which leads to Trump. Mm. So it's also, it, it looks on the surface to be about some feisty feminist women, um, but it's about how they how they were defeated. Mm. And that's very unusual. Yeah, no, completely. I mean, even just the way you describe them as feisty feminist women, I know that's a sort of slightly tongue-in-cheek because this mm. we constantly use this word feisty to um describe to refer women to, but not men. Right, exactly. So it's got problems in itself. But I think and I think in Natasha's article it's kind of brought up that there is this um we're so used to hearing the sort of success stories and when we especially like a younger generation when they like to think about sort of feminist history they like to think about what was achieved the empowerment and what was brilliant about it and actually the real story is that there's a lot of hard battles that weren't won and like you know and this is this is as important as recognizing those battles that were right that's right and also you know it shows that some of the you know the there were there were trade-offs between you know are we going to are the feminists going to back um, a black presidential presidential nominee or a black a candidate for the nomination who has almost no chance of winning, um, or are they going to back um, a man who does have a, a chance of winning? So there's that that paradox is there that beginning struggle, and then are they going to alienate ordinary women? Out in Middle America, Phyllis Schlafly supporters, if they if they um, embrace lesbians, so yeah. you know it's all those, that intersectionality was there right from the beginning. Mm-hmm. I think we're going to stick on the topic of TV for uh, your next answer okay. because I've also asked you to talk about a another TV show that you've loved recently. It sounds like you've loved Mrs. America, but there's also I did I loved other it, things. But I about it twice <laughs> exactly well you can you know it can be there in the background but you've also been watching something else haven't you that you've enjoyed lately um yeah I mean there's been some amazing tv um but one of the, the highlights was the second series of Elena Ferranti a story of a lost name story of a name um I I read the, all of them when they were first published and Many, many people loved the first the first book, but I loved the second book um, more when they are teenagers and when Lenny Lenu is trapped in this terrible marriage of her own making. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's an extraordinary piece of acting and direction. Um, but I it, it it's so much to me about self sabotage. Because that's what she does. She sabotages herself over and over and over again. And there's this scene which I remember so vividly from the book when she's taken along to the teacher's party and everybody there is an intellectual or an aspiring intellectual or an educated person. And despite her extraordinary beauty, her poise, her elegance, her beautiful clothes, as soon as she opens her mouth, they just turn away. She, they bore, she bores them. She's, she's, not a, she's, she's not someone that they would take account of. And there's a sort of humiliation there because it, just, it shows that all the things she has won't take her far enough. And from that point, she... She does everything in her power to remove the ground under her feet. And you're in such admiration of her in one level, but the final scene of the last episode when she's working in the salami factory is just completely harrowing. I mean, I I, I love the series visually because um, I think 
when you're reading them, you imagine the sort of, you know, these romantic narrow streets in Naples, <laughs> such as we have all seen with sort of narrow windows <laughs> and washing lines. But it's that's not where they live at all. They, they live in a, a, an isolated, enormous 1930s council estate mm. or the equivalent of absolutely bleak, completely unromantic and cut off from the sea by a sort of road tunnel. And um, it, it's it's an astonishing piece of work. I mean, I did really kind of like Miss Amer- Mrs. America. I just ate it up and was very sorry when it finished. And I'm desperate now. Well, I'm desperate now because nobody knows when they're going to make the when they're going to be able to make the start filming the next series. Yes, yes, you're stuck a little bit waiting for that, aren't you? I mean, were you before you watched this? Were you before you watched the first season? Even were you worried about whether the adaptation would um, mm. disappoint you? Because I think there's something you know there's something so tricky about adaptations of beloved books in particular, right? That people you have such an idea in your head of what you saw these characters as you saw their kind of environment as um and i think more than so many other books recently the ferrante adaptation has been one that people were sort of on tenthooks for and and then either loved or hated you know well um absolutely i mean the fact that paolo sorrentino was on the credits was you know reassuring and the fact mm. that she had been so involved um was reassuring I thought the casting was absolutely superb. I, I mean, I couldn't have asked for better, really. I, not a single character. But I also think that if you don't know Italian society, Neapolitan society, you actually don't know. You don't know what you're imagining, and you're imagining things that are erroneous. I think. Mm. So that's what I mean about imagining that they live in this, you know, these winding street, narrow streets of 18th-century houses, and that's not it at all. Um, I I think it was more real for me watching it on TV. I mean, obviously it lacks the voice, the authorial voice. It lacks the ideas. And yet I think it told the story with enormous tension and fantastic characterization. Um, I I thought it was probably the most successful TV adaptation I've ever seen. That's pretty high praise. I hadn't realised when... I started watching the first series that they were only serializing the first book. I thought they were going to do all four books. So it was not as compressed and edited as it would have been and what I expected it to be. I mean, it was really detailed and every every important scene was there and not glossed over. I think that's often one of the problems with adaptations, that things are inevitably made a lot shorter than they would be yeah. on the page. And that's where often people's uh, issues with them come, isn't it? It's the fact that they've had to you know, cut out a certain storyline or really condense yeah. something into a very tiny space. Whereas this, they seem to have so much, um, there was so much attention paid to yeah. doing justice to the novels and to what had been put on the page, which is such a yeah. rarity. We don't see that that often. I mean, hopefully we'll see it more in the future, but it really was a, a sort of standout piece for that. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, what's your thoughts on adaptations more generally? Are you, when you see sort of beloved books turn into films or TV, does that sort of make you think you want to watch that? Do you kind of err on the side of caution? Um, do you have well, any particular thoughts? I, I'm I'm sort of rather silly in which I in that I think if I haven't read it I don't want to watch it because I want to give the book credit first right um, even if so I would never watch an adaptation of unless it was sort of quite an obscure you know a trollop something like that mm. obscure well not the trollop is obscure but a 19th century or something like North and South you know Cranford that kind of thing. I, I don't mind adaptations of Victorian novels. Um, I mean, the thing is that presumably TV adaptations and films bring new readers. I assume that people watch the film and then hopefully go and buy the book. Yeah. Um, but I would buy the book and then go and see the adaptation. But I don't know anything about the film and TV business, and I don't know how it works out this way, but people who do work in that industry say they're not the same mediums, just keep your nose out. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's interesting. I think, I suppose it's just, yeah, people have to think about them. The storytelling is very different in, in these two different mediums, yeah. so it doesn't always 
um, translate that something that's excellent on the page will be as excellent on the screen or vice versa. Yeah. Um, I think I'm always very interested to find out what, um, particularly people who write fiction, what their kind of thoughts are on uh, on the whole process, because some people have very sort of pure ideas about what they want to watch and other people are happy to kind of roam free. But these days, like you say, there's so much brilliant TV out there. You're sort of spoiled for choice anyway, aren't you? So, Well, yes. And TV being made from original concepts like yeah. like Succession, like um, This is America. So there's a lot of stuff to watch. Our shells will be back in just a moment. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome back to Our Shelves. Welcome back to Our Shelves. I'm Lucy Scholes and I'm talking to Linda Grant about uh, brilliant TV adaptations. Uh, next on our list of questions, Linda, we've asked you to pick a photograph that you treasure. Um, could you describe the image you've uh, chosen and tell me a little bit about it, please? It's a 1949 photograph by Norman Parkinson, and it's been on my wall for a long, long time, about 25 years. Um, it's a photograph of four women standing on the top of a skyscraper, and it's clearly an advertisement for hats. Um, so they're, they're surrounded by skyscrapers, and... Three women are huddled together. One of them's wearing a wonderful red hat, and they're obviously gossiping and telling each other something very funny. And the, further to the right, there is a woman with a really pointy feather sticking out of her fat, wearing white gloves and a red collar with a diamond brooch on it. And she's holding her hand to her face. And clearly... She's smiling, but I don't exactly know what she's thinking about what these women are saying. But it's a composition. It's Norman Parkinson's composition. And it always cheers me up when I look at it. I love the style, those sort of neat little kind of, you know, wasp waist deal jackets that they're wearing. And it's just a lovely photograph of four young women enjoying themselves and what looks like one of them is wearing a mink stole. So it could be quite a cold day. And it's just a wonderful piece of fashion photography. Where did you first come across it? Do you remember? Um, I, do you know, I cannot remember. I think I may have seen it in a book. Um, when I was writing my first novel, The Cast Iron Shaw, which is about a woman, a young woman of that vintage, I think I was looking at a lot of photographs, possibly for covers, and I was reading... Uh, I was looking at a lot of photography books at that time. 
Um, and I think that is when I had when I first came across it. But I've had it on my wall for ages and ages and ages. I mean, I can't remember not having it. Mm. It's uh, the minute you sort of that was the photograph that you mentioned. This fashion, wonderful sort of fashion shoot. It made me think, obviously, about the thoughtful dresser, the wonderful sort of book yeah. you wrote about fashion, um, which is full of sort of. I mean, it's. It, I found that book really, really interesting because. Um, I'm very interested in fashion as well. And I, I, I sort of straddle that line like you, where it's, you sort of worry sometimes that your interest in fashion is not um, <laughs> as <laughs> like, A, do I, I don't know quite enough about it to be an expert, but it seems sort of slightly shallow to be interested in, a, in another way. And so you're always wondering about where to put. And that book, uh, sort of every page made me sort of reinforce my idea that, yes, it's so completely okay to be interested in fashion because there's so many other important things that fashion tells you about in terms of life, um, death, you know, how people live in society. Uh, but yet some of the things that stuck with me, I think the most of that, uh, the wonderful um, sort of stories you tell about women from that era and their kind of interest in hats and those the wonderful stories about the Dior new look and things like this. So it's really lovely to know that you've got a picture that's sort of showing all of those in, in your flat as well I mean do you think was that a sort of image that you would I, I'm trying to think I suppose thinking about the thoughtful dresser when you were writing that were you you're obviously using a lot of visual cues I imagine were you sort of hunting through archives and finding these fashion shoots and then using them in, in your work well not not really because it, I mean, it's not it's not a book with illustrations but I was trying I, I was trying to think about I, I wasn't really writing about fashion. I was writing about clothes um, mm. because everyone wears clothes. <laughs> you're not allowed not to wear clothes unless yes. you're on a nudist beach or in the comfort of your own home. I finished writing The Clothes on Their Backs. It had just been published, and it was one of the um, shortlisted books for the Booker Prize that year. And Sam Jordison uh, at The Guardian said, well, I don't think this is up, this is a book I would be interested in, but I'll give it a go, something along those lines. And he had an author photograph, and I said in the comments, I can't help but see that you yourself are wearing clothes in the picture. <laughs> and, in fact, you're wearing a necklace of wooden beads. <laughs> and we became great friends after that. Um the fact is, everybody has to wear clothes. And when people say, I'm not interested in clothes, I think they mean that, I think they often mean that, you know, I find shopping intimidating. I don't mm. know what the latest fashions are. I don't even think I want to wear the latest fashions. I want to feel comfortable. I want to wear clothes that I feel suit me, that I feel have something to say about me. And that, I think, is the all-important point, that clothes say something about you, whether you like it or not. And um, my my grandparents were Jewish immigrants and they very, very quickly recognised that in British society, um, clothes were class indicators. Mm -hmm. And so a working class man wore a flat cap and a middle, middle class man wore a Homburg. And so my grandfather always said it was very important you should you should take you should take great interest in what you wear because you're trying to send a message out. And of course, that's what clothes are doing all the time. And so I was very interested in in that and the way we can made to make can be made to feel so bad about ourselves if we feel that we're wearing the wrong clothes or we can't find clothes that fit, or the clothes that we want are, are out of fashion, or we're trying to be sexy, we're trying to use clothes to look sexy, or we're trying to use clothes to not look sexy to try to hide ourselves behind what we wear. So I was interested in the sort of the psychology and, and the signals that set clothes send out rather than fashion itself. Um, but I was also fascinated by the way clothes do and don't appear in literature. So, for example, Jane Austen hardly ever writes about clothes. But George Eliot writes a lot in Middlemarch. And in fact, the very, very opening page of Middlemarch is about Dorothea Book, who looks best in, in plain black, because she knows that actually it sets off her figure. Of course. Um, and there are various scenes in which she goes shopping for clothes. I mean, Chaucer in Canterbury Tale, he tells you what the wife of Bath is wearing. 
Proust, of course, the great writer about clothes. I mean, nobody has ever achieved the same the same detail in terms of what his characters are wearing um, and his knowledge of designer labels like the Puccini gown. And Virginia Woolf talked about it. Um, there's that wonderful line in The Great Gatsby when Daisy talks about Jay Gatsby's beautiful shirts, all beautiful shirts. And it goes on like this. Um, the, there's a wonderful line in uh, Dodie Smith's I Capture the Castle when she says, a great a new dress is a great help under all circumstances, <laughs> which is nothing has ever been truer said. Um, and then I think that what happens is, you know, from around the 60s onwards, you get things like she came towards me in a dress the colour of the underside of a gull's wing. And you think, what are you talking about? <laughs> so I think you have that literature becoming a place of a place of self self-appointed seriousness and we can't talk about fashion because it's trivial and then chiclet comes along and you have to have, mm. you have to build a wall between literary fiction and chiclet and that seemed to me to complete be completely preposterous i remember when i was writing the first draft of the cast iron shore my agent saying, your research is showing. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, you, you, you mentioned the designers of the clothes that people are wearing. And I, I said, well, if I said that he was driving a Jaguar, would that be research showing? <laughs> is it, if it's a car, do, is, is it different somehow? And so I, I think that clothes matter enormously. And I was brought up to believe that clothes matter enormously. And that involves the enjoyment of fashion, but also an understanding of what clothes mean. Mm. There's something about those images of sort of a 1950s uh, a woman, an elegantly dressed woman, wearing the sort of Dior new look suit, wearing the hat on her and her head, that um, sort of opens a whole host of of sort of connotations in my brain, which I think is incredibly useful. And maybe that's also what you're saying is sort of happening in when people write about clothes in fiction as well. It, it sort of does something else for the reader. People will talk about things that they've bought, but I, I, I notice a lot what, what people wear. And I notice the way that people are incredibly self-effacing, can be incredibly self-effacing. And I also notice where you get somebody who looks absolutely spectacular, but isn't young, isn't thin, you know, isn't wearing expensive clothes, but have just put together something marvellous. But I think when you read a novel, if you say, well, she was wearing a green velvet dress, and you know that this was written in 1938. You have quite a, you can have quite a strong image. I mean, in, in Atonement, there's that extraordinary dress that she wears. Yes. Um, and I, I suppose different readers have different antennae for understanding what is meant when a dress or a jacket or or a suit, a man's suit, is described. Um, in up to the, I suppose, the 1940s, you would get an awful lot in literature of them. Sorry, I think he was wearing a good suit. He was wearing a good jacket. He was wearing mm. a dress of good material. And that's really talking about something we don't talk about at all now, which is the quality. Because in up to the 40s or 50s, people were able to recognise the social class of the person that they were talking to by some signals which I certainly don't recognise at all, which were to do with tailoring and mm. the quality of cloth, for example. So there's one of the stories um, I like, he, I, he liked to party, I liked to party, which, you know, the, the, the man turns up wearing, you know, a suit which is frayed or, you know, needs darning or smells of beer. Um, and... So there are all kinds of ways that people understood clothes that need are almost sort of need need to be need archaeological investigation. You know, we need to kind of understand what they're writing about, but we have to get that people write about clothes in different ways. Sorry, I'm rambling. No, no, no. I think that's really important. I think maybe that's yes. It all sort of ties into what I'm thinking about. But those 
those signals of um, yeah the good cloth or the good cut of a material is something that people don't really talk about today. Not in that sort of basic. I mean, if you you know, unless you're getting tailor made clothes all the time, and then you have to be incredibly wealthy to have that, right? So it's a it, there's a whole different set of things going on. But there's also a sort of you know a, a, a genre of male writing in which clothes are only described in order to describe the flesh which is adjacent to them. So you know <laughs> her her tight jeans hugged yes. her shapely buttocks or. You know, her ample bosom was spilling out over her co- cotton peasant blouse. You know that kind of thing. Yeah. That in which clothes are, are props for um, a kind of you know sort of rather dreadful erotic writing. <laughs> well, sticking with novels for a minute, but on a slightly different uh, topic, yeah. um, I've asked you to. Uh, to tell me about a novel that you always recommend to friends, but I think you've got a bit of an issue with this question, don't you? Uh, well, I'm driven mad by people recommending books to me and saying, <laughs> you must read this, you must read this, you must read it. It'll change your life. It's the best book I've ever read. I'm kind of like, mm. um, we you know, we want our friends to love what we love and we feel rejected if they don't love what we love. And so I tend, I I recommend books to very particular, particular books to particular people. So there isn't mm. a book I would recommend to everybody. Um, and I would never, you know, hound them. To, Have you read it yet? Have you read it? What did you think? What did you think? Did you love it? Did you love it? Um and because that that can lead to ill feeling um the book that i know that not everybody will read because it's such a daunting task is vasily grossman's life and fate now the thing about it is most people who start it not all most people who start it will finish it and will emerge sort of weeks or even months later like sort of somebody who's been crawling across the desert in search of the oasis you know parched exhausted but utterly changed it's set during the second world war and it has a vast cast of characters all of whom are profoundly affected by what is happening in the war so some of them are on the front one of them is a physicist in his lab in moscow who is jewish um, sons, daughters, his mother, who is in um, a concentration camp, writing a letter from a concentration camp. So it's an absolute panoply of Soviet society. And it is it is quite hard to follow. And it is not a book that you would read for fine writing. Uh, I'll tell the story of its publication in a moment. But it has a message so simple that you could write it on a greeting card, and it's about acts of kindness. So the author, Vasily Grossman, was a good Soviet citizen. And under Stalin, he became disaffected, and he became disaffected from the idea of ideology, the ideology which is pressing down on your head. He didn't become right wing, that wasn't it. But he wanted to lay importance on the life of the individual and the individual's right to their own eccentricities and peculiarities. That's what it's about. And when he finished writing it, um, he had to submit it to the um, the writers' union. This was a legal requirement. And they took it away and they read it and they said, this can't be published for 300 years. Imagine that. Wow. And he died not long afterwards, um, of agonizingly in the early 60s of stomach cancer, I think. And... Um, Sometime in the 80s, um, the carbon copy, the carbon, not the carbon, the actual carbon was discovered. The carbon copy was discovered and it was photographed um, on microfilm and smuggled out of the out of the Soviet Union to Switzerland by the physicist Sakharov. So it's an extraordinary story about this book. It was published in France. Um translated into French and it wasn't translated into English until I think the mid to late 1990s 
And Anthony Beaver, in his book, um, Stalingrad and Berlin, The Downfall, referred several times in the footnotes and quoted from this book. And that's where I first came across it. It's about 800 pages, but I thought, okay, I'll try this. And I started reading it in about 2003, I think. It took me three weeks to read. And for a further three weeks, I couldn't read anything else. I, I was recovering from reading it. It is the most extraordinary work of fiction. As I say, he never had a chance to edit it. What you're reading is absolutely a first draft, but it is utterly humane. And this is about human beings living under in terrible, terrible times and behaving in ordinary, unheroic ways, but doing kind deeds. There's a very touching scene in which a young soldier reaches forward to kiss his soldier girlfriend and tactfully removes a louse, which is on the collar of her jacket. And then there is um, an old woman who, without ever knowing why she's done it, reaches into her, her pocket and takes out a piece of bread and gives it to a starving German captured soldier. And in one of the most extraordinary, moving um, scenes in the book, an unmarried teacher accompanies a young child into the gas chamber so he won't have to die on his own. I mean, it is absolutely harrowing. Um, and the book is just saying, be kind, be human, be ordinary, be yourself. Don't let ideas oppress you. So if anybody listens to this and reads it, <laughs> um, I promise you um, no few joys and pleasures, but I promise you a <laughs> really profound experience. And the current vintage edition has an introduction by me, so you can learn more about it. Uh, well, sticking with incredible books or books that have made you uh, really sort of changed your life and made you think differently. It sounds like uh, Life and Fate has certainly had quite an impact on you. Um, could you tell me about a book or books that have made you think about feminism in a different way or a new way? Well, it's it's a long, 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 long time since I read it. Um, but in the 70s, I read Sheila Rowbottom's um, Hidden from History. Mm. Um, and she's an historian. She's a feminist historian. Um and at the time, I don't think there was anything like it. You know, it was basically what work, the, the achievement, not the lives of working class women that I had never heard of, that most people had never heard of. It was a real piece of, you know, archive exploration. Um, and it, it had a lot of influence on my understanding of how social change is made, you know, generally through the, the lives of people who um, who don't get statues erected to them. So, so as I say, it is, yeah, I mean, I haven't read it since then, but it not so much its contents, but the concept of it as look at what ordinary people are doing all around you, look back in history, um, because history at that time was essentially male history, apart, unless you were a monarch or unless you were um, Florence Nightingale, there was hardly any women in history. And it was the idea that there are whole histories to be told that we're not being told, that we're not being taught in school. I mean, I think that she, I think she changed the teaching of history. Um, mm. I mean, she must have done because I, you know, I mean, I haven't studied history till I was at school, but I imagine that history is as it's taught at university, would include, you know, those forgotten people that we don't know anything about or didn't know anything about. Well, I think that whole, um, I mean, social history as a sort of concept yeah. now, I think is, is sort of so um, woven into our ideas of history and particularly yeah. women's history. But you're right, at the time she was writing, this was an entirely new thing to be doing, right? Like yeah. nobody else had done this before. Um, yeah. I'm also sort of surprised I don't know. I remember. I think I remember finding books by her on my mum's bookcase when I was younger and reading them and being absolutely fascinated by these stories of ordinary women's lives. They've always, you know, I've, I think I've always found those very interesting. But I'm always taken aback by how few people or how few younger women seem to have read someone like mm. uh, Robotten today. It just seems a sort of uh, an odd like she's sort of missing from their their own um, history, well, that, as it were. That, that's right. I mean, she was around from quite early on. I mean, she was contemporary with, more or less contemporary with um, 
the RA feminist, but she was never a particularly public figure. And she, I, I've met her a few times. She's a very modest person. Mm. Um, and they're not the books are not theoretical. You know, they're they're not they're not they're not works of radical ideas, except that it's radical to tell stories of unnamed unknown women. Uh, I think she has been a bit hidden from feminist from feminist history. Ironically, I think that's true, and it's a great shame because I lo I, I I loved her because she was challenging the status quo in a way which I think had such resonance to people who were alive at the time who were thinking, "What could I do that could ever make a difference?" And it all led into things like the, you know, the the Grunwick dispute in the late seventies, the, uh, um, and of course the campaign for equal pay. Um, so I, I mean, I think British feminists have always been a bit under the radar, unless you're Jermaine Greer. Mm -hmm. I'm interested as well in in sort of I suppose the a wider and a broader effect that sort of works like this or others have had on your own writing over the years. And I don't mean, I mean, obviously on your nonfiction writing and you've written um, a political history of the sexual revolution, Sexing the Millennium. And obviously we talked earlier a bit about The Thoughtful Dresser. These are sort of fascinating. Um, I mean, they are books about social history, um, but I'm also interested in how that reading these sorts of works um, has affected your fictional writing because I feel when I read your novels, I'm very much aware of you seemingly trying to sort of examine and chronicle a particular part of social history at that moment mm. as much as the kind of individual narratives yeah. of your protagonist. And I think for me that what makes your novels particularly um, strong and sort of effective is I, I love, I mean, in A Stranger City, I love the fact that you are also writing about modern Britain. Um, I mean, I love In the Dark Circle where you're talking about the founding of the NHS and, and these TB sanatoriums in the late 40s and the early 50s. And, and these are sort of hidden parts of history and, you know, with characters in them who won't have been written in the history books, but you're able to do something with them in a fictional setting. So do you think this is always, do you think yes. how much this sort of writing has um, affected you? When when I was writing The Pastime Shore, which is my first novel, keep on coming back to that one, I wanted to write about somebody who joins the Communist Party, but instead of being in, in 1940s and 50s America, but instead of being um, a, uh, a leader of men and women, she's one of those legions of women who made the tea for the revolution, who were in the background right. making the coffee, you know, getting the meeting papers in order, setting the chairs out, one of the foot soldiers of the revolution. Um, there is a, an astonishing book which has just been reissued called The Romance of American Communism by Vivian oh, Gornick. Yes. It was first published in the mid-70s and it had a big impact on me because it was interviews with people who had been, mostly had been members of the American Communist Party and what their lives have been like. And I love telling those stories, those stories of people who are not famous, who maybe didn't accomplish anything, but anything in their own right, but were part of social movements and how it affected them and what went wrong for them. And one of the things that that book tells you is how many people said that when they left the Communist Party, they felt that they'd lost something, something that was bigger than themselves, an idea that was bigger than themselves. Um, and the TB sanatoria, um, you know, the, imagine a place where people from all social classes are sort of, you know, together, locked in together, um, just at the birth of the NHS, waiting for this cure, which hopefully will come in time before they die. So the sort of social ramifications of that really interested me. Yeah, it's fascinating. I love that book. It's it's such a brilliant, um, such a brilliant kind of evocation of an era, but uh, forgotten side of things that I had no idea. I mean, I sort of, I guess I probably knew in principle that there were TB sanatoriums, but I had no idea what life would be like in one. And and down to the little details about, you know, you're living in austerity Britain, but yet you're being fed huge amounts of cream and bacon and yes. things to kind of bolster yes. you up. Um, it's just sort of brilliant, brilliant writing. And, and it's a way to uncover these forgotten stories, you know, in, in, in a different way, I think, than just writing the nonfiction versions yeah. of them. Yeah. 
And the last question I have for you today, Linda, is can you name a woman whom you admire? Yes, very, very easily. And this took um, no thinking whatsoever. It's Joan Bakewell. So imagine um, you're in suburbia in Liverpool in a detached 1959 built house. And there are two TVs and um, your parents are in one room and you're in the other. And you're sitting on the floor, crouched over a program called Late Night Lineup, in which an indescribably beautiful woman with long black hair, dark hair and a mini skirt and very, very long legs is grilling some titan of the arts, asking the most incredibly intelligent questions. And unbeknownst to you, one of the titans of the arts that she's grilling with questions is Harold Pinter, who she's having an affair with. Um, And week after week after week, this is going on on your TV, and you are thinking, what? (laughs) There is another world. There is another way to be. There is a whole life out there. And this woman who, you know, admittedly was quite a lot older than me. I mean, she was in her 30s when she was on Late Night Lineup. But she was, you know, she was so beautiful and she was so fashionably dressed. And she was the catalyst for me. I wanted to be her. I mean, I don't mean I wanted to be an arts presenter, but I wanted to live in the world that she lived in. And she was, you know, a a sort of a gun in the small of my back, shooting me forward into the future and out of suburbia. And many years later in the 90s, I I met her at a party at the BBC and something happened, which was, you know, cold sweat dripped down my back. We were introduced (laughs) and she knew who I was. She, Joan Bakewell knew who I was. And we became friends. Um... And I went to her 80th birthday party where she was wearing um, a red Diane von Furstenberg dress and Milono Blahnik slingbacks and all these people, you know, who had passed through my TV screen were there. And I was in the middle of it with my mouth open. Um, and I, you know, we, we, we have dinner, we go and see films um, we saw Parasite together just before lockdown. And I've been talking to her during lockdown because she's, you know, she's, I think she's 86 now, 87 maybe. And um, so she's a bit isolated. She's been isolating before lockdown. But I admire her enormously because she has this ferocious intellect, which I don't think she recognises herself, how clever she is. She has gone from having this career as an arts presenter, um, radio presenter in all kinds of programmes, and then went to the House of Lords. And I've had, I once had tea with her in the Lords. And she's always immaculately dressed. She always looks completely fabulous. And she says, oh, where did you get that dress? Cost, darling. I got it from Cos. <laughs> So she was saying at this dinner, oh, you know, my next trip is going to be Libya. What? (laughs) What? You're going to Libya? Um, And she's very funny and she has made an enormous amount of her life. She talks in paragraphs. She always says incredibly intelligent things. She's funny. She's charming. Um, She has the most fabulous house now she's just moved so everything about her I envy and admire and she's such a role model I remember sitting next to her um at a a lunch I think it was and she just started to talk about my affair with Harold I said bliss bliss (laughs) um um, she never holds back there's never an impertinent question um and she is indefatigable i mean she seems like a woman many years younger than she is and i think she's you know she's an absolute force for good um she's been so influential on my life mm. i think what i also love so much about this the your story you're telling is that that sort of everyone says don't meet your heroes but in this case meeting her has obviously enriched your life in a in a, in a wonderful way 
she got me to do Pilates. She she started Pilates when she was 59. I started it slightly later. Um, but yeah, I do Pilates because of Joan, because she's still <laughs> walking about with vigor and driving her <laughs> Mini Cooper. Well, that's wonderful. I think that's a perfect place to end. Thank you so much, Linda. It's been a joy having you on the show. I really enjoyed doing it and talking to you. Thank you for listening. Our Shells is brought to you by the team at Virago Press. Special thanks to today's guest, Linda Grant, and tune in next time for more conversation about books, feminism and culture. Thank you for listening. Our Shells is brought to you by the team at Virago Press. Tune in next time for more conversation about books, feminism and culture. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.